I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. This week's sponsor is Book of the Month Club again. Book of the Month Club is a service which I think is like the best thing ever, where you get to pick from five books each month uh, to get whichever one is your favorite. Book of the Month Club is offering Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books listeners an exclusive offer of signing up for just $5 for your first book. This is not to be missed. Bookofthemonthclub.com. Go check it out. And many of the books on this podcast have been Book of the Month Club picks. Uh, so go, just go buy them. Enter code Zibby, Z-I-B-B-Y, for this exclusive offer. I am just so beyond thrilled to be sitting here today with Kelly Corrigan, who is the author of four consecutive New York Times bestsellers, including Tell Me More, Stories About the 12 Hardest Things I'm Learning to Say, Glitter and Glue, The Middle Place, and Lift. She has been called the Poet Laureate of the Ordinary by HuffPost and the Voice of a Generation by O Magazine. Kelly is currently the host of the Nantucket Project, a live event series and podcast. She is also the host of Exactly at KQED radio station. She is an accomplished columnist with essays in Oh, the Oprah Magazine, Glamour, and Good Housekeeping, a graduate of the University of Richmond and San Francisco State University, where she received her master's in literature. She currently lives with her husband and two daughters. Welcome, Kelly. Thanks so much for coming on. Moms don't have time to read books. Oh, thanks. It's like to be here. This is a killer room we're sitting in. If you guys could see it, it has, I'm going to say there are 700 to 1,000 books in my eyesight right now, and they're all arranged by color, which is how I have my books at home. So I feel really, really comfortable in this space. Oh, I'm so happy. <laughs> As I was telling you, I've been like following you, I feel like for years, because I've been reading all of your memoirs forever. So I don't know, this is such a treat for me. Oh, thanks. Thanks for having me. Where I have sat and read all your books. So it's very cool. <laughs> so Tell Me More is your most recent book, Stories About the 12 Hardest Things I'm Learning to Say. Yeah. Can you tell listeners what this is about and sure. what made you write this particular book? Sure. So I, was, I had written my first book, The Middle Place, which is about my father and I both having cancer at the same time. I think it came out in 2008. And then since then, I had written Lift and Glitter and Glue. And then this new editor that I was working with, his name is Andy Ward, and I went out for sushi at Blue Ribbon Sushi in New Love. York. Yes. And I was telling him about this argument that I got in with my husband about the difference between saying I'm sorry and saying I was wrong. And it was my contention that saying I was wrong involves a level of humility that I'm sorry just doesn't somehow have. And maybe it's because as parents, we force like our three-year-olds and four-year-olds to say I'm sorry like four times a day, that by the time they become adults, it can be a really kind of a cheap, perfunctory statement. And I was wrong is kind of a big, bold, incredible thing to say. And so at this dinner table, I was saying to Edward, like, if you were really, if you were really in a tense situation with somebody that you're in a permanent relationship with, they could stop everything if they were just to say, you're right, I was wrong. There's nowhere to go from there. There's no, the fight's over. And that got us wondering, like, what else do you have to be able to say if you want to be in, you know, big, juicy, satisfying relationships that last for decades and decades. And so we started to sort of work out this list. And then right around that same time, so my father died, it'll be five years in February. And then after my father died, not long after my friend died, her name was Liz Lotz. And she had three kids, and I gave the eulogy at her service. I gave my father's eulogy. And in the process of writing those and thinking about what it is 
that it all comes down to, it became crystal clear that it's it's just about these relationships. And so that combined with this funny conversation I had with Edward made me think like, oh, this is actually a really worthwhile undertaking because if it's all about relationships, which I'm entirely convinced it is, then how do we do them? And I'm not a self-help kind of gal. I don't have that background or the expertise. So then I just went looking for stories that I thought totally underlined these big ahas that I have had over the course of being married and being a mother. At one point, I had 17 different things that I was learning to say. And then I had kind of whittled it down to six. And then we ended up with 12. What, what got left on the cutting room floor? Like what's something you learned to say that didn't make it in? A huge, huge thing that was left aside because it was too big for the book was You Can Go, mm. which is what I said to my dad when he was dying. And it, the, you know, telling that story in the way that it deserves to be told was running at like 70 pages. And some of these chapters are eight pages. So at some point, it was starting to become obvious to me. And then Andy Ward, my editor, said, this really deserves its own space. And once you get to it, that's all anybody's going to remember. This is going to be the book about your father dying. And he said, and I just don't, I don't want to overshadow everything that comes before because it's so useful and it's so fun to read. And so let's just set that aside. And so we did. And I have this, now it's 200 pages of that story in great detail of what it felt like to be in that three-week stretch. So is that your next book? I'm not really sure. I sort of, when I write a book, I'm also committing to two fairly significant book tours. So there's a hardcover tour and a paperback tour. And the last time with Tell Me More, they were each 20 cities. So it's a huge undertaking. And Reading even just the little bit about my dad and Liz that's in Tell Me More, like I can never get through it without choking up. And it gets heavy. So it's sort of hard for me to imagine. It's very easy for me to imagine sharing the pages somehow. Like, I don't know, through an email to subscribers is really the way I've thought about doing it. You know, I have this 6,000 people who asked me to, send them emails every so often. And I thought, maybe I'll just share it with you guys. Maybe I'll just send it to you in little pieces because that way I don't have to tour with it, which feels excruciating to me. I don't know quite what will happen to it. I'll definitely find a way to share it, but I just, I'm not sure which. And I'm definitely not, I can't imagine really just like plopping it up on Facebook. You know, I was sort of imagining that this email thing might be an interesting way to do it because these are people that, are super, feel super connected to my work. And so maybe that's the most personal way to share it. Like, it feels funny to try to commercialize it. I don't know. Like, I can't imagine being in a meeting at Random House talking about what the cover should be. What if you did an audiobook? I thought about an audiobook. I've thought about a podcast where I could read some and then talk some about what it feels like now to look at those pages because it's been almost five years and grief is such a, an animated force. I mean, it's not, it's not stable. It's not static. So anyway, I'm really right in the middle of trying to figure out how to share that stuff in a way that's helpful to people because it would definitely, definitely, definitely be helpful. Like if I 
if I had had something, I mean, I was just starving for people's stories, detailed stories of letting somebody go when that was happening to me. And after it happened, I read Ages for Hawk and I read A Grief Observed and I couldn't get enough of really intimate, thorough telling of that story of like, what is it to lose somebody that you just don't know that you can be in the world without? So. Well, I would hate to think that the stumbling block of the tour and the travel is gonna prevent this beautiful book from coming out. You know, there's gotta be a way I know. I mean, this is not for me to figure out how you figure out, but I feel like, you know, maybe yeah. there's something you could work out with the yeah. publisher or something. I mean, yeah. people are going to buy it anyway. Yeah. Maybe you've gotten to a point you don't like maybe have to tour as much or something. Yeah, I don't know. Okay, I don't, you figure it out. Okay, maybe we'll just do it on this podcast. I'll that just would be do great. It. Yeah. Yes, I'll just, just use episode my podcast. by episode. Yes, at the beginning of every episode. I'll Isn't read. it called Moms Don't Read? Like, yeah, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. It's perfect. Yeah, so we'll just we'll just read it oh, to you. Done. Done. Perfect. You can come <laughs> in. We can just hang out every week and you can just read a little bit. I would then you don't have to, to buy room. your own microphones. This room is pretty gorgeous, I got to say. <laughs> if you ever get invited to come to this room, you should come to this room. Very sweet. (laughs) It's probably why I can't motivate to leave it. Uh (laughs) Well, let's talk a little more about what's in this particular book as opposed to the next one that I want to help market. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Because I was really, I mean, as you said, you wrote beautifully about, I mean, you didn't say you wrote beautifully, but I'll say (laughs) you wrote beautifully about your dad and your friend Liz's loss. Yeah. And one of the things was how you almost made part of the book as if you were talking to her, right? Like, here's yes. what happened after. Like, yes. here's how it was with your kids. Like, yes. I told you I'd watch out for them, and here I am watching out, and here's what happened. Which yeah. was, like, heartbreaking, but so moving. That was the very, very last. So that chapter's called Onward, which is definitely a thing you have to be able to say as an adult in the world. There is a time to accept things and keep moving. And it is not always as easy as we wish it was. And so I, I had written this completely different story for that. And I had what I thought was that I had already told you enough, you, the reader, enough about Liz and that there was a sense of completion there. And then I had this other story, and the other story was too excruciating. So I have this great friend. His name's Jim Morrison, and his wife and children are all killed in a plane crash. Oh, and he has found a way to stay in the world and to be just a lovely person to sit next to. And it's astonishing to me and all the people who know him that he's able to be so giving and to receive other people's lives, which are so easy mm-hmm. compared to his. And somehow he can still have compassion for your, by comparison, quite small problem. And so I had written a lot about him, like 30 pages about him. And that, at some point, a friend of mine, Arielle, who's mentioned a lot in the book, she's a therapist, and she, her daughter and my daughter are great friends, and she and I walk together once a week. And she's, the, she's really very wise. And, and, and to the extent that there's anything in this book that you feel is wise, you should attribute it to Dr. Arielle Tross <laughs> in uh, Oakland, California, because she really helps me understand what is universally true about what I'm saying, what's particular to me. Like she's an early reader of mine and we talk a lot and she really grounds it in a much larger body of understanding and research than than I have access to. So at any rate, I took the Jim Morrison and what she said about the Jim Morrison story is, this is stands out for several reasons. One is because it's 
utterly horrifying. It's, it's beyond what all, most people don't know someone that that's happened to. Everything else in the book, people know someone is that, that that's happened to. And the second thing is that it's the only chapter that's reported. Like you didn't live through that with him. You met him after. And so everything you're telling us is, is almost as if you're writing an article about him. And it just doesn't, it stands out for that reason. And if you want to keep it in, keep it in. But if you, but to me, I feel like it also deserves its own place, that it's a separate thing. And I thought that was pretty, pretty good observation, honestly, the idea that it was the only part that was reported. And so I set it aside. I was afraid to tell Jim that I was setting it aside. I didn't know how he'd feel about that. And we we still feel like we're going to do something with it. So I think he feels good. We can talk about that media plan next. Yeah, exactly. I can, I'll, I'll weigh in on that in a minute. Yeah, he's go, go an ahead. amazing human being. So then I had this hole and I wanted to get to this point about onward. And then I said to Edward, like, I, I think I solved my problem today. Like I basically had spent, I had just recently spent time with Andy and the three kids and I had just observed so many things that I thought Liz would love to see. Like, for instance, they have this very enormous juicing machine. Like, it's this giant metal thing that you, you know, you use this hand crank to juice beets and carrots, and you put all the herbs in there. And it really does make an incredible glass of juice, but it also makes an incredible mess. Like, the juice-to-mess ratio, for me is way out of whack. So I would never, and also just the sheer size of it, like you need, it needs its own cabinet to live in. So anyway, Andy and I sort of saw that the same way, like that this is just a whole lot of drama for not that much juice. But to Liz, it was this great joy. Like she really took pleasure in making the juice. And I think that she had a very thoughtful opinion of it that she was showing her kids, like this is where juice comes from. This is what it, so when you go to Joe's Juice, and you get some beet juice. Like, this is what happened before that. Here's, here's how many oranges it takes to make a glass of orange juice. Like, she was really hopeful that she could somehow show her children how much work went into the things that we might be enjoying too casually. And also, she was a believer in food as medicine. And medicine in and of itself was a topic that she'd spent a lot of cycles thinking about. She was sick for seven years with ovarian cancer. And she tried a lot of things, Western and Eastern. I mean, she did 88 rounds of chemotherapy. So oh, she tried all gosh. the things that you're supposed to try on this side of the Atlantic. But she also, you know, talked to nutritionists and she did a lot of reading. And she's a very smart woman and really well-informed. So anyway, sure enough, when I was there, Andy was making this juice with the kids. And he and I shared a look across the table. And I knew he knew what I was thinking and... And so when I went home, I just wrote her this letter and I said, like, look, you're never not going to be here. And that is, is going to keep hurting. Like, you're not going to be there when they get pregnant. You're not going to be there when they get engaged. You're not going to be there the day they get married. You're not going to be there the day their husband loses his job and they freak out. Like, there's a lot of loss ahead that's unavoidable. And I am not minimizing this. But I want you to know that these people are doing as well as these people could be doing. There's a lot of love in that house. There's a lot of joy. They still laugh. They still run around. They still like to play the same games. Like nothing's been destroyed in the wake of your loss. Like they, because you just don't know, you know, you just wonder like if we all played Euchre together when you were alive, do you never want to play Euchre again? Or do you want to play Euchre every day? Or do some of you 
want to play it. And others of you can't believe that you would play that game, even though she's not here. Like everybody's, there's four people living under one roof and they're all doing this grief thing and their own rate and their own style. And like the potential for conflict there is terrible, it seemed to me. But my observation of them as a foursome is that it couldn't be going better, which is to say it is excruciating. And yet there is joy and there is connection. And and Andy, you know, a thing that Liz and I talked about a lot, and we talked about things I've never talked to anybody about because nothing will make you more honest and more of a straight shooter than the potential of death. But what she said about Andy was, I'm really afraid that he's not going to know how to do this. Like, he's not particularly patient. And that's like a really high requirement for parenting. And if neither, you know, she was the patient one. Like, there were things that she did that she did not, she was not sure he would be able to do. And I agreed with her. I did not talk her out of that feeling. I did not reject it out of hand. I accepted it. I internalized it. And I m- mirrored it back to her. And sincerely, like I said, he's a big, big career. He started a company. The company went well. He's the center of attention in every room. He's a great storyteller, big personality. Like he's not the guy who notices that one of his kids you know, is is starting to get a sty in their left eye. That would not be his nature. And he's definitely not noticing that someone's not eating their dinner or that they, someone went to bed earlier. You know, like there's a lot that you have to be scanning for as a parent. Somebody's got to be scanning for it. And the way they worked out their relationship is she said, I got it. And she was very good at it, very capable, very tuned in, very sensitive. So anyway, the thing I really, really wanted her to know was he's doing it. He's doing this thing that we didn't, we weren't sure he could do. Like he is such a good student and he always was. He was a, like he went to great schools and he was a great athlete. He was a college swimmer and he was a great business person. And he is not a person who's going to get beat by something. And in fact, I think probably that's why his wife having incurable cancer was so maddening for him was that it was the first thing that he couldn't like learn his way out of or strategize his way out of or build a team to get his way out of. But he did it. He, he is like mother and father and he's really quite good at it. And he, he calls like, I mean, he, he's really on his feet now. It's been four, it'll be four years very soon. But for at least a year and a half, he didn't call Edward, he called me. And he said, just tell Edward, like, I don't really need to talk to dads right now. Like, I'm trying to learn how to be a mom. And th- those dads, they don't really know. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, no shit. And then he said something like, the, the dads keep calling me and saying, like, come on, let's go out for a guy's night. And he's like, and I can't afford to be a hungover. I'm a mom now. <laughs> and I was like, there we go. Now, this is like, you should, like, go on tour and just say 10 things I learned trying to be a mom. Because there is a difference. And it's so gratifying to hear it. And so anyway, in that letter, so there's just a letter to Liz in Tell Me More, and it's the chapter called Onward. And it's just, here's what's happening. And it's working to the extent that it can work. Do you believe that she knows? Like, just, do you believe that she in some way could, like, knows the content of the letter can look like, do you believe in it in that? No, 
I don't. I wish I did. The thing I believe, though, very strongly is that there's a lot of her that's still here. Like, to, to be with her children is to be with her. And it's like it's all been sprinkled, like, all over all of them. Like, her youngest son looks so much like her, it's, it'll give you the shivers. And he's very kinetic, constant motion. And every now and then, he'll just let me stare at him. And I am convinced that he knows what I'm doing. So I, I think we are, I mean, of course my dad's still here, like so much so. Like uh, there's so many things I do every day that are part of Greeny. And so all that, there, there is a distribution after a person dies for sure. I, th- I think it's their loss. I mean, I think it's her loss. What, what she doesn't get to be with us, we get to be with her in a weird way that's insufficient, but is what it is. But she doesn't get to be here. And I don't think that she knows. I don't. Yeah. I don't. But, you know, I would be thrilled to be wrong. You know, I'd be thrilled to discover that I've, I'm short-sighted. And, and sorry, that was so personal. I didn't mean to ask. That's okay. I, just, I wonder, you know, people have all these different beliefs and feelings. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, you know... I feel like I try to convince myself that people are still around, all these people who I've lost, who I love, because I know maybe it's not true, but intellectually it makes me feel better. And then what else do I have other than how I'm feeling about it in a way? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's only my mind. Like I can trick myself, maybe. That's right. (laughs) It almost seems unfair, though, the people who pass away without having children, because then— are they still as sprinkled around? Do you know what I mean? I don't know. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I mean, it depends. In their family. Any connection, certainly the parent-child relationship is singular. But, I mean, I think there are probably people in the world who had deep relationship with my dad who every now and then might pass the police officer manning the, you know, the crosswalk and say, hey, how you doing? Have a great day, you know, and and... And that's really straight from him, you know, that, that you would have that urge to, to splash around some positivity. Wow. So when you were writing this book, like, when do, how do you get into this headspace where you're, like, going back through the losses and all the pain and everything else? Like, and then, like, you know, stand up and go pick your kids up from school or something. Yeah. Like, how, when, do you do, when do you do your best writing? Where do you like to do it? How do you manage the, those transitions? Not very well. Like, I'm not, I'm not, there's nothing about my process that anyone else should ever try to adopt. (laughs) It's very sporadic, and there are long periods of very low production. And also, it's kind of hard to see yourself. Like, I don't necessarily know how I'm getting things done. It never feels to me like it's happening, and then all of a sudden, you know, like, I'll say say to Edward, like, I think I'm finished. And he'll be like, what? Like, when? And it's like, I don't know. Like, I had a little burst. And, you know, so something will be, like, kind of more or less the same for eight or nine months. And then all of a sudden, for three weeks straight, like, I'll just start going around tightening all the screws and, like, filling things out and seeing where this thing should go and figuring out why it's even there in the first place. And therefore, I can write a transition that's, like, makes the whole thing, like, click together. And so it's like that. But I do, one thing that I'm starting to understand about me is that I think a lot of times when I'm in a really deep conversation, I'm collecting and testing 
So like I do this thing called the Neighborhood Project. Yes, I want Which to. is this, it's like the best part of my life right now. So it's small groups of people, friends, and someone raised their hand and says, you can come to my house and we'll watch a short film. So it's like 20, 25 minutes. And then we talk for an hour and a half and there's no cell phones and it's totally confidential. And then we come back the next month and do it again. And I'm in two of these groups. I'm in one in Southern California of a friend of mine. I don't get to go very often, but when I go, I learn so much. And then I'm in one in my little town. And like, we just had it. We have ours on the third Saturday of every month. We all go somewhere at nine o'clock. You're not allowed to like put out a whole bunch of food or whatever, because we don't want any burden for anybody. So it's just like a box of coffee. 9 a.m.? 9 a.m. Okay. And p.m. I'm in bed by 9 p.m. I was was about to be so impressed. But anyway, I'm like, wow, that would be amazing. I don't even know what 9 p.m. is. Last night, the Democratic National, the debate was at 9 p.m. I'm like, 9 (laughs) p.m.? I can't stay up for that. So anyway, so we watch these short films, and they're, you know, seven-minute documentaries or whatever about all sorts of different things. Like after the genocide in Rwanda, there were these— this law of gachacha took over, which is the law of the grass hill, where a person who had perpetrated a set of crimes against a family would say in front of the community, eyeball to eyeball, to the remaining family members, I killed your brother, I killed your mother, I put their body in this latrine, I raped your daughter, the whole thing. They come completely clean. And then that person decides whether they want to forgive him or not. So we watched, so one of these films was like, so nice and light. Some of them are really light and funny. Like there was this one about this guy, Wayne White, who makes this hilarious art. And it was just the story of like, how did he come to make this art? Because it is, it's really extraordinary in the literal sense, like it's extraordinary. And so he tells his story and it's kind of a gas and he worked for Pee Wee's Playhouse and Mm -hmm. made puppets and stuff. So anyway, it could be about just about anything. But then when we're having these conversations and the people in my group, I just have such high regard for. There's such interesting, my group in Oakland is just all women. The one in LA is co-ed. And when you're listening to their stories, the more you listen, the more you realize like where the points of intersection are. And that helps me understand what ideas I want to lean into on the page. Like it helps give me the confidence that this isn't going to completely miss when I put it out there. Because I kind of put things out there in these groups. And then it will resonate and people will talk about it and they'll add something interesting to it, as people do in great conversations. So just the problem is the whole reason the Neighborhood Project exists is because there's not that many great conversations happening right now because people just aren't making the time. And they're also responding to like current events and this is more like universal. Like these are themes about like forgiveness or humility or um, curiosity, like stuff you could have been talking about 500 years ago in a completely different society. And that's a relief. And that really helps me understand like what it's like, like the nicest thing people ever say to me about my books is, or if I give a talk or something, they say like, exactly. Mm-hmm. That's exactly how I was feeling. I could never have put it that way. Mm-hmm. I've never been able to put words on it, but that's exactly how I felt. And I feel like I get to exactly in conversation first. Mm. And then I and then I can write more confidently because all it's doing is some kind of validation conversationally gives me the confidence to even bother trying to write it. Hmm. I think if I'm toying with something, then I'll 
discover myself kind of floating it conversationally. Mm-hmm. And if the if it generates interesting conversation, then I think, oh yeah, that's good. I'll, de- I'll definitely, I definitely keep going on that. Like I'm working on a novel right now, and you know, it's a little bit like reticular activation. Like once you buy a red Jetta, then all you see on the street are red Jettas. Like, but everything that comes up in conversation, I'm like, this is such validation for this novel. Like this is exactly what I'm talking about. Can you say what the novel's about? No. Nothing? No. Okay. When, do you know when it's coming out? Do you have a, like a, like, is it already scheduled? I think it will come out in early 2021. That's soon. That's not so far. Yeah, a year yeah. from yeah, a yeah. year from next year. That's exciting. It is. It is. It's the most comfortable I've ever been in a creative project. Like I'm so confident that this is worth doing, that it's worth reading, that it's worth talking about, that it's that is core enough to everybody that everyone should have an opinion about this question I'm putting out there. Oh my god. Through gosh. this story. I cannot wait to read this next. Yeah. <laughs> what a teaser. I know, Thank I know, I know. Do you have any parting advice to aspiring authors? I know you've already said a lot of You know, I just did a thing. I don't know if anyone's ever heard of this thing. It's called She Writes University. Yeah, I sponsored your Oh, Jackie you did. Sponsored oh, your great. class, yes. So I think it's available and you can just get it. And it's an hour and a half of me sharing everything I know about writing nonfiction. So that's available to you. But I mean, I do, I do think that being in your document every day has a certain unappreciated value, which is like every time you open it, you're com- you're making this tiny commitment. Not opening it is like not getting on the scale. It's like you're afraid of something. And so you should really make yourself open it. I think it keeps it alive in your subconscious, which is super valuable. Like there's a lot that we know that we don't know we know. And there's a lot of weird odds and ends of conversations and observations and feelings and life experiences that can all kind of swirl together if we just keep that activated, like keep the question open in our minds. And to do that, it helps just to read a chapter every day. And most people, like once you open the document, you're not going to be able to resist. You're going to noodle around in there and do something. I think there's always a little activity that can match your mood. Like there's, um, like writing on a blank page is one kind of mood that you might be in. Another might be like really fine tuning some editing. Another might be like this thing I'm doing right now for this novel is so fun. I've made this little paper book and that I sewed the spine of. And it's now my- you're, Now you're just bragging about I know. these skills. I, mean, I know. Okay. That's enough now. Thank so you. So fun. I okay. shot it right through the sewing machine, which is set up in our house. And now I have like this little yeah. sewn paper book. And it's a reference guide. So this the, the girl in this novel is born in 2000 and, sorry, in 1994. And so it's just 19, every page is a different year. So sometimes I'm in the mood to remind myself, like, what was the number one song? What won the Oscar? Who was president? What was the biggest scandal? Who won the World Cup? When were the Olympics? what was like the cultural catchphrase that year and kind of map that against the life of this character. And so that's a kind of activity that's actually moving me forward in the process. Like it's all work that has to be done. So even if I'm not in the mood to create from scratch, like write the next chapter, I'm, I, I can find something to do that will move me forward. 
So that's another reason why I think it's really valuable to be in the document every day. And I think every day means Saturdays and Sundays too, because I, the other, the last thing I'll say that I think is really encouraging is that even at 30 minutes, it can be really effective. Like I know from reading books out loud at readings for 10 years that, you know, there are these million dollar lines that it's like the best line you've got in a whole chapter. And that might easily come to you in one of these quickie sessions. Like you could be in a document for 20 minutes and find the line, like the words might come to you just right. And it's the whole punchline of this whole passage that you wrote. And you can live off that for years. Like, you know, (laughs) I know when I'm reading out loud to people, I know when I've got one of those lines coming and it's so fun to see it there and think like, I can't believe I'm still like getting the hit off of that little line that was like one of those 20 minute drop-ins where I was like, oh, I know I'm going to say this is so funny. And so that's another gift is that you can like small little pockets of time can actually be very high yield. Love it. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of this with Mom's to Read Books. I really appreciate it. Bye ladies. Thanks for listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books, the award-winning podcast. This episode has been sponsored by Book of the Month Club, bookofthemonthclub.com. Enter code Zibby to get your first book for just $5. You can follow me on Instagram at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You can always email me at Zibby at ZibbyOwens.com. 